Welcome to Value Laden, a series where we hear from educational leaders on the role values and principles play in what they do. I am your host, Punya Mishra. I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Dr. Sean Lesher, the CEO of Urban Discovery Schools in San Diego. Sean is a good friend, an amazing human being, and educational leader. In some ways, this podcast exists because of my conversation with him and my personal, somewhat selfish interest to learn more about him. So first, we will listen to the conversation we had, and then I'll be joined by one of the producers of the show to get another perspective on my conversation with Sean. So without further ado, let's jump in. So uh, let's just start and give us a little bit of how you ended up in education and uh, sort of your background, your family and sort of life that led you to this uh, spot right now. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Punya. It truly is a pleasure. First, I, I can earnestly say that that the value of education and, and the power of education is something that was demonstrated to me from a, a very young age. Um, growing up, I watched both my mother and father. I was able to watch the power of education in their lives. And, and they they went through community colleges and colleges, and, and in particular, watching my mother, who got her Juris Doctorate or her law degree, and how education transformed our lives became a, a central value into everything that, that I approached. As I got older, I, I want to tell you, I got into to education. Uh, naturally, I started as a teacher's aide right out of high school. Uh, I did that because it, it was a, a paying job. But what I quickly was able to see is how teachers were impacting students' lives. It's one thing to experience student education as a student. And, and it's something very different when you see it from the perspective of being a teacher's aide or a teacher. Um, I then continued to teach when I uh, went to school in Boston and, um, and then uh, eventually had some things alter my life path. And, and one of the ones that definitively altered my life path was a deep dive study of the works of Paulo Ferrer when I was in college that was coupled with the, uh, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe and meeting people that were from Eastern Europe that convinced me to go and become a, uh, a professor in Eastern Europe after I completed college. Which which I did. I want to uh, uh, stick to Boston for a little bit because one of the things that you know you've talked about is, I mean, you were getting a degree in music, but you were in this class or something which, or or this program which allowed uh, you to interact with professors in science and philosophy and so on. Which I think uh, one of the things I've appreciated about you is sort of the multidimensionality that you bring or the richness that you bring to the work that we do. And it seems that there is something interesting happened there that maybe you can talk a little bit about. Yeah. So I was studying music. I was at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, in downtown Boston. And at the time, uh, Berkeley was part of the, this collection of universities that came together um, that had an exchange program. So it, it was great you were at Berkeley, but if we were studying... Uh, physics, we would have professors from MIT come over to, to teach us, or we would go over to MIT um, for various other classes, literature or philosophy. We might have professors from Harvard. And that's what happened in, in my case is there was 
this opportunity to take a philosophy course. And so the, the course that, that I got into was one that was incredibly rich and deep in, in nature. And it really changed my perspective on the world um, through a professor that very much was pushing on topics of, of social structures and the topics of what, what capitalism had done um, and was doing and how those economic pressures were impacting different people in the world. And if education was a means of liberation and a way of being able to, to come through those economic cycles, then it, it was also the barrier to it. And it felt that we should work on that, that that should be a, a moral imperative, something that should be upfront. And that's what eventually led me into um, several rounds of teaching and, and school administration and district administration and uh, why I, I went forward and sought out the degrees I sought out, um, trying to better understand those topics. It seems that this the stay that you had in Czechoslovakia, that was a time of great sort of ferment in that part of the world. I mean, uh, the Czech Republic uh, broke up. There was Yugoslavia happening at that time. A lot of sort of discussions about what it means to get out of sort of under sort of the Soviet rule or the you know Iron Curtain. Can you speak to that experience and what how that sort of influenced your thinking? Particularly, I mean, one of the things that you know you and I have talked about is sort of the the fragility of systems. When they first talked to me about moving to to Czechoslovakia, it was Czechoslovakia, and during that process, they had their Velvet Revolution. And when I eventually arrived, it was two countries. It was Czech and Slovakia with, uh, with Václav Havel as the president uh, of the Czech Republic and um, Vladimir Magyar uh, in Slovakia. And I, I was going to, to primarily be working in Slovakia at the Conservatory of Bratislava. And what was fascinating was going there and it, it was a unique time. There were so many, so many people that had been brought together to help support these, these really fledgling democracies. And they had been brought from different parts of the world. The lessons that it taught me as well really were that these systems were incredibly fragile. We, we tend in the West to, to think of our democracies as and our systems as being incredibly robust and strong. But what you could you could see at the time when we would go through and see the various systems as they would develop, whether it be um, market systems where they would unpeg uh, dollar prices that historically had been pegged in, in communism, whether it would be the price of milk or, or gasoline or cigarettes or any number of things, is you could see that it, it was something that was being earned, but you also could get some of the history of how quickly it could be taken away. Yeah, this is fascinating for me uh, to hear this. And so that brings me to this thing, which I've always found a streak in you of optimism. You know, you have a very deeply philosophical bent, that's clear. Um, so I'm just curious about this sort of, this idealistic, optimistic uh, perspective that you bring to the work that you do. Yet there is an a recognition of the of the reality of the situation. So, how do you sort of balance that? Well, you know, going back and talking talking back to to the notion of 
you know, sp- taking a deep dive uh, of uh, into the world of Ferrer, you know, Ferrer would teach us that uh, hope is an ontological necessity for those working in, in oppressive cycles and, and in, in a fight of oppression. But I also think it, it was a, a core family value that you have to be able to have a vision and a hopeful vision and an optimistic vision that just because something isn't as the way that you think it should be doesn't mean it can't be that way. You know, the, a message given to me by my my grandfather as he was passing away was very meaningful to me. And he he cautioned me and at the same time warned me in a way that that made me understand that we have to be dedicated to these things and and we have to confront the reality of them is he said to me, Sean, I hope you are prepared to engage in the long cycle that change truly is. And um, he let me know that he worried that sometimes we become very impatient and we don't get to a level of understanding the deeper problems that our surface level problems are are rooted in. I find it it's easier to confront reality and accept reality than trying to defend a version of reality that that won't get us to a meaningful conversation. And and just because you accept the reality and deal with it doesn't need to negate from the prospect of making things better in the world. So you're in Europe and you've been working there. Um, and at some point, of course, a shift happens where you switch from music and you get into education and you come back to the States. Can you give us a sort of a snapshot of how that uh, shift took place? The journey into public education in the United States came through different ways. Um, I made a move back back to San Diego. And um, in San Diego, music brought me back into public education in a way that was most unexpected. And that was for me to uh, be approached about a topic of of what I could do and what I could contribute to um, K through 12 education. And I, I entered into edu- public education then as a consultant. Um, it was to develop uh, cluster music systems. And in looking at that and looking at the state of education, I very quickly was moved from the topic of arts education into the topic of high school reform education initiatives and how we might go about conducting secondary schools very differently. Um, So that would entail all sorts of really difficult uh, structural factors of school and and community factors. And um, I moved very quickly um, into a position of uh, being a consultant to being a a teacher, to being small school administrator, to being a district director, and uh, eventually a head innovation officer and chief of staff of a a district uh, to the position I'm in today. So I, I worked at a series of high schools and then through a series of reform initiatives and, and efforts. And and that's really what brought me back in and, and what has kept me passionate um, about the importance of education uh, to our children's future and their children's children's future uh, as a way of making sure that that we have all of the tools and skill sets that we need, first of all, to sustain a vibrant democracy. 
Uh, second of all, to become enlightened, to understand the the wrongs that our our society has committed and continues to commit to this day, but to become enlightened on them and then to have the skill sets that are required in order to engage in that. Because I, I truly do believe that without engaging in that, we're going to come to a point where we're, we're not going to be able to continue to have a honest and, and vibrant democracy. We're going to have to confront all of the points of racism and oppression that have become ingrained in us. This is, I think, a good point to segue, you know, from, I think, some of your sort of personal story to sort of the work that you're doing now. And one thing that really stands out, your district took a very different stance from many other school districts when this crisis first hit. And I think something you said to the equivalence of like, you know, that you start with the ones who are hardest to reach, while many districts either completely shut down or chose to go with sort of the easiest group to work with, you know, students who already had access to technology and so on. Um, but I think you, you, you and your team took a very different approach. Maybe you can speak to that and what prompted that and how that sort of played out uh, since we are sort of hopefully towards the, the end, getting to the end of the tunnel of the COVID-19 in, the, you know, in a few months. But, but to me, that sort of demonstrated how your philosophical stance actually plays out in the real world in a time of crisis. So maybe you can speak to that a bit. So specifically what what occurred in the pandemic is we made some conscious decisions. We're in the inner city school system, TK through 12. Uh, so four-year-olds all the way up through 18, 19-year-olds. And a, a large segment of our population is at uh, higher risk uh, based upon uh, their background and factors beyond their control. When we we sort of saw the first numbers of COVID-19, the initial numbers that I read truly led me to believe that school closures were very much something that would be considered and a reality that may come into being. What we made a conscious choice of, of doing at Urban Discovery is uh, we made a preparation plan. And what we did was have a quick discussion. And by a quick discussion, I mean, it, it, it was a long conversation that had already happened, but a quick discussion to simply say with the leadership team, it is our duty to protect the most vulnerable. And just to affirm that as being a focal point of, of everything we would be doing. So we did, we did have our stay at home uh, orders occur. We did shut down schools on March 13th. Uh, what did take us a step back is we were fully open on March 16th, which was Monday. And in our area, we we were very much alone. There weren't a lot of places that were operational on Monday the 16th. And we were fully operational, special education services, uh, community outreach services. We had made sure that we had done all of our surveying to get everybody internet to make sure every student, not every family, but every student had a computer in hand when, uh, when we closed and that we would continue to push technology devices out and that we, we would not engage in many of the practices around us. And a lot of those practices were, you know, a, a reaction to something that had never occurred in our lifetime. 
And that was part of our core belief that many of our students needed us at this moment now more than ever. And while that was going to be really hard on all of us as as educational practitioners, as teachers and community outreach experts and, and principals and, and systems leaders, um, it's what was required of us to be of service to our community. And, and that required us engaging in completely different thinking. That required of us a thought process where we were not going to try and recreate the classroom um, online. What we were going to try and do is create an educational outcome that was equivalent to what we were seeking in classrooms. But we would do that through an aggregate of various services and supports, whether that be through uh, computers and distance learning or outreach and phone calls or different virtual environments or or simply writing back and forth. We, we were going to do things very differently. The notion always is that you have, as an educator, a, a moral and ethical obligation to serve those with the highest needs first, and that we need to reach those that are the hardest to reach. And that needs to be what we do every day. So one of the tensions that emerges in situations like this is people making sort of a mathematical or sort of economic call, which is, oh, you're going to, you're giving so much support to this group. And that is now disadvantaging my child or because they are not part of that group who you're giving special services to. Is that a tension that I'm sure it's a tension you have to deal with? And how do you respond to something like that? One of the things that we agree to do is we uh, agree to talk about things honestly with our parents. And it does come into, um, into some really hard conversations and discussions. Everybody wants what's best for their child. The, the goal of a public education system is to want to do what is in the best interest overall for the entire public. At least in our school system, where, where I'm currently working, we, we are very honest about this. And it is true that uh, we do spend more resources and time on some children other than other children. That That is factual. And um, that is because needs are different and, and needs are different across the spectrum. And our goal is to get from our student body as a whole the, the best outcomes and the highest levels of achievement in totality, not for one, but, but for all. And that means having ongoing and continuous discussions and conversations about the importance of this for our society and the importance of this for our student body. And, and what we can do is we can have that conversation on an ongoing basis rather than just a, a, a one-time workshop. And I think that's where a lot of the rub comes in public education is if we're unwilling to talk about this on a daily and weekly basis, that we don't acknowledge it as being the core of our work, that this is what's required as part of our, our true first mission inside of public education, which is child development, adolescent development, and young adult investment, that development, that this is what's required. And to talk openly about it, you just have to make it a clear cut value of the entire school community. 
I'm sure there are lots of challenges to this. I want to break this question up into sort of two parts. The first has to do with your getting hired for this job in the first place and what, for want of a better phrase, I'll call managing up because you are you know, bound and beholden to a group who hires you and then who has the option of letting you go if you, if you don't do what they think is right, uh, whatever your thoughts may be. So how, how do you sort of manage that? And then the flip side, of course, is the other side of it, which is building a team of people who share some common values, but also there is going to be differences there and how that plays out. So let's start with this whole idea of managing up or getting the job in the first place while keeping these core values that you have intact and maintaining integrity with that. What I have found throughout my career is you're always going to have some hard conversations with your employer. Um for me, it's it's better to have those hard conversations up front in the hiring process rather than to have them on the tail end of a firing process. So uh, in terms of you know the concept of managing up, I, I would say I've been very upfront with my board from the moment of being hired and stated exactly and precisely what my particular approach to educational philosophies are. And I think that that becomes critical. One thing I, I try to be clear about with the people that uh, that I work with and the people that I, I work for is I'm very clear that I'm a, a social reconstructivist, that I believe that society is imperfect and it is our duty inside of education to try to create a more perfect future state for our world. And that that begins with the education of our children in terms of what we teach them, how we teach them that, and and the various ways that we approach things. So I've, I've been honest up front uh, in terms of that. I, I've done my best to be honest at all times to the best of my understanding of my own philosophical framework and approach that I don't have a hidden uh, agenda. So that way we can continue to engage in that conversation. So it's not a surprise. That position, it took me a long time to, to get to a place where I was comfortable saying it out loud because it's considered to some people to be a, a more radical uh, position than even a, a progressive position. So part of that is building a team that, that comes into that, but it also has to do with persuading people within the existing system that that they need to approach things differently. And that means creating environments where we can have open dialogue, where we we can talk about our reservations and feelings and, and deal with so many of these items that, that exist in education. Certainly, I, I, I won't say everybody that's working at Urban Discovery Schools takes my precise philosophical values or or aligns with me. I, I tend to hire people that disagree with me a lot as a hiring practice because um, it's in the disagreement that we get to new and better ideas. But we do have to have some pretty clear core value alignments. And we have to be really clear about how that manifests itself in practice. So uh, one of the things uh, I think we are sort of getting to the end of this, you know, this conversation. But one of the things that uh, has really impressed me about 
you and the organization is you're bringing together uh, aspects of design thinking, uh, which is a phrase that I sort of push against, so design-based ways of looking at organizations and schools and learning, and also action research. It's, it's something which is, I think, sort of you've tried to bake into the organization and the way it functions. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as to, I think it also goes to this idea of that you can have deep philosophical ideas about something, but how they play out in action is often not very obvious, or you can read a research study and how it plays out in the actual real world uh, might require some translation and, and shifting. So maybe talk about this this aspect of the organization, which to me is like, it's it's like a, again, for want of a better phrase, would be what one would call an active learning organization, uh, which is not one which is fixed in its modes, but is continuously sort of questioning itself, questioning its assumptions, uh, seeking to learn and grow and do better. And I think this the design perspective and the action research, that the way you've merged those two together are very powerful tools in that. Uh, maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Absolutely. So a, as an institution, no, I think you've hit on it you know, you know, in, in broad strokes. Uh, we're known as a design thinking organization. Uh, I, I, I believe design thinking is a phrase that is becoming quite popularized. I, I think at the moment I, I've tended to, to lean towards uh, designerly ways and, and that movement as well. But we we do take an active design stance and approach to what we're doing. And the basis of that is being researched and literature informed at all times. And our modality for doing that is action research. Um, I, I have been somebody that very much believes in action research for for some time. And even when I, I spent time at a large uh, urban district here in the Southwest uh, as a district director, when I would want to conduct action research, action research uh, would need special approval from special offices in, in order to achieve it, uh, achieve your research study status. So at Urban Discovery, one thing that uh, we very much embrace is ongoing action research cycles and ones that challenge our practice, studies that challenge um, our stance and our philosophy, and, and ones that aim to break cycles of confirmation bias. So that way we are continuously looking at problems differently. At any given time, we have many different action research studies running at Urban Discovery, anything from smaller scale um, studies on, on classroom practice that teachers might be engaged in to uh, mid-level cycles of looking at particular processes for improvement to official IRB, IRB approved from universities and our, our interior IRB uh, board approved uh, full-scale action research studies to deeply examine what we are doing. What that leads us to is new understandings as we approach our design process. In, in terms of our design process, action research becomes a part of that community voice that we need so that way we can challenge some of our understandings in the design process. I know a, a lot of educators that I've spoken to when I speak about uh, design thinking or, or design-based education feel that somehow that that approach to education takes away 
from the expertise of the educator. And we don't find that at all at Urban Discovery. What we find is that it amplifies. It amplifies the expertise because we get more information, more feedback loop cycles, and more understandings um, from all levels. And it occurs in, in all aspects of what we do. Right now, we're in, 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 in an implementation cycle of a new testing system, which is TK through 12. And part of that is a small action research cycle of understanding what we did well and what we can improve upon from various experiences and practices. But in this particular cycle, we're, we're paying a very different level of attention to our parents who who have had a lot, a lot during this pandemic cycle put upon them and have had to take the lead on the day-to-day basis of educating and making sure their kids are on task and all the other things that go along with what they've had to endure. And one thing that we had never considered was how we prepare parents to proctor a standardized test exam. And what we're finding is that we've got a lot of learning to do there uh, with within this. And we're going to continue in an action research process of not simply reading the literature on, on the various aspects of what we're encountering, but also learning from our own community. And that's because part of that core value within design, but also within action research is the notion of transferability, not necessarily generalizability. And the notion that we can take some generalizable concepts, but we need to customize them to the here and now of what's happening at the at the school level and how we can go about finding an adaptation of, of that generalizable concept that can be evenly applied for the original purposes to, to get to the outcomes that we desire. I love that that you mentioned this this distinction between transferability and generalizability because I think so much uh, when we look at educational research tends to sort of emphasize this generalizability issue and it sort of assumes that whenever we do something, it'll automatically very easily transfer over into a different context. And that's where I think the the role of the educators and the people you're working with as being agents, being interpretive, actively interpretive agents rather than just saying, oh, here is an idea and I can just go ahead and apply it. That's a really powerful one. So one question that I had is like how, I, I love the fact that, you know, that you're building this organization where everybody sees themselves as a researcher or designer, because I think that's such an interesting flip in perspective. I'm always reminded of this quote by Steve Jobs, where he talks about, and I'm going to mangle the quote, but he says something about that everything in the world around us was created by somebody not much smarter than you. And the way I use that in education is that all of this stuff is just made up by us. And so we have every right to tweak it, change it, break it, put it together again in new ways. How do you actually have active training for your teams around action research and design-based ways of thinking? How do you inculcate that within the organization? Yeah, we do have uh, active training on, uh, particularly on on design concepts and uh, interactions. Uh, uh, we we have an active partnership with the UC uh, San Diego Design Lab, uh, which was founded by 
uh, Dr. Don Norman. At, at an upcoming um, school building that we're looking at erecting, we actually will house the second design lab for UC San Diego as being um, the one that that's a practitioner's lab uh, housed in in the city. So yes, we we do have an active process for professional development. Um, it's not a requirement when you come in to work with us that you understand these concepts. Uh, we find that the philosophical uh, and core value alignment to be a, a little more of something that, that we seek. For design thinking, we also have a community profile of what it means to have an organization that supports design thinking in various aspects and ways. What we tend to do is we roll out professional development through implementation cycles. And then uh, when people are feeling more comfortable, we put them on design sprints and design challenges uh, for specific aspects of the organization, whether it be curriculum development, instructional development, operations. Um, we, We don't list limit the design thinking to just one aspect of what we do. It's in all parts of what we do. In in terms of action research, we tend to partner with, uh, with universities uh, and we are constantly encouraging everybody in our organization to continue their education, whether that be formally or informally. For smaller action research cycles, uh, they'll be guided by somebody that has conducted action research in the organization um, at a more formal level. But what we want to be able to do is to to release the, the potential in everybody around us that's working with us, because I, I believe Steve Jobs is right. You know, most of these things sitting around us have have been invented by by somebody not much smarter than us. So we hold that that potential within us. It's the goal of the organization to create a climate, an atmosphere, and a positive system that releases the best of us uh, rather than frightening us to, uh, to be our worst self. Perfect. I can't think of a better way of a statement to end this, this episode on. And I think one of the pieces that didn't maybe didn't get captured as strongly Sean is the the humor and lightness of touch you bring to everything that you do and thank you for all that you do and thank you for taking time to have this conversation with me it's always enlightening and just amazing to talk to you and so thank you for your time thank you so much no thank you Punya I truly appreciate it I'm now joined by one of uh, our producers, Jennifer Stein. You know, Jennifer, what do you think of this episode? You know, Sean's a really interesting guy. I've had a chance to meet him a few times, but I got to know him a lot better in this episode because I didn't know anything about his personal background or things he's done, you know, before he ended up um, as a as a grad student at ASU. So I was curious, actually, Punya, how did you how did you kind of originally get to know him? You know, I actually don't remember how I first got to know Sean, uh, but I do know, I think maybe it was through the ED program or something that way but it was amazing like very quickly we formed this sort of really interesting rapport and friendship and as you can see from the episode I mean he is a deeply philosophical guy and in some ways like the contrast to me who is this really bouncy you know whatever fellow but I think what we connected on is I think it was around this idea of values and what we how we thought about education and in some ways like I said in the beginning this whole podcast started 
because I wanted to talk to more people like Sean. You know, the other thing, though, that I also think is similar is your interest in lots of things like that, that you have a you have a broad interest in not just education, not just design, but in in all sorts of, you know, film and, and this and that and the other thing. And one of the things I loved learning about Sean was his background in music and how that was like this, his first career move was was going to, to study music. And then, but that I think, fortunately, um, his music education was also quite broad, like he had opportunities to take philosophy courses and, and all sorts of other things that like led him in this in down this rich path. Yeah. That's a that's a good insight. I hadn't thought of that. I think that that's partly what I think sort of resonates between him and me is the sort of wide range of interests and stuff. And what's kind of funny is like my research on creativity shows that people who have sort of had diverse experiences actually bring that into play even in careers which are be very different from where they started out. I wish, you know, I mean, in the podcast, we can we only have so much time, but I think it would have been fun to dig into that a little bit more. Like, does he see himself as a conductor, you know, of this school, of this orchestra that is education, right? Could be have been a fun uh, rabbit hole to get into. <laughs> I don't know if he would have actually thought of himself, thought of himself that way, but, but maybe. Um, the other thing that I have thought was interesting about his school is the way that design is not just a, a piece of what they do at the school. It's not just a thing that the teachers do in the classroom or a, a method that they follow for, for engaging students, but is really part of the structure and operations of the school itself. Like I think when they're having staff, you know, working amongst themselves as teachers, that they're also really thinking about design and action research as the way they do things. Yeah, that was what I think sort of really initially resonated with me with what he does. I mean, you know, he talks about that any given moment, they have like eight or 10 different action research projects going on. And to see a school and an organization as being this learning organization where you are intentional and thoughtful about how you approach things. But again, you know, it always comes back to the sort of this core commitment to certain key values that's how you make decisions when you when in a situation of ambiguity and and covid-19 was like a great example of that right where their school was up and running on monday which means they had been sort of prepared for it in some ways and that's the other thing that has stood out from this conversation with Sean and some other ones i've had where organizations which were already seeing themselves as learning organizations dealt with the crisis much better than other ones who were looking to someone else for guidance and instruction right so that's another sort of an interesting uh, point, I think, that comes out in, in, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would have, um, I wanted to know more in detail about how, what did it mean that they were up and running that next Monday? Like, what, you know, what did that look like? How did it work? Uh, I have that practical side of my brain. It's like, well, what do you mean? What, what, did, what did you do? So, I mean, this is, I mean, in, in another conversation I've had with him about this, uh, this did come up because he was a guest on Silver Lining. And he talked about that, which is that they were actually reading the tea leaves before most people were. So seeing the the rise of the pandemic and all those numbers that were going up, sort of saying this is coming, right? And so we need to be prepared. And, you know, how do we, it's starting to make lists of who are the students who are harder to get reach of, who are the ones who are lacking the technology, you know, so starting from that, which is, I think, another amazing thing that Sean speaks to is that you don't start for the ones which are easy to reach. You actually start from the ones who are the most difficult to reach. 
And I think that's a classic example of how a core set of values or principles that you think of yourself as an organization now define your actions at a time of crisis, right? Um, you know, and many other organizations, we know of many organizations which, you know, schools and so on, just sh- either just shut down or said, okay, we're going to do the bare minimum we, we need to do and, you know, so be it. Mm-hmm. Right. They weren't, they weren't looking to someone else to make decisions before they right. acted right. reacted. Right. Yeah. So who's coming up next, Munya? So uh, next is Dr. Karen Bolin. Uh, she runs the Montrose School in Massachusetts. And we, as always in these conversations, covered a lot of ground, which means a lot more work for the producers and you as you try to pare it down to something which is halfway coherent, because I tend to go off on these tangents like I'm doing right now. Uh, but, you know, we talked about the role of literature. We talked about, you know, character development. So, yeah, it's, it's a great conversation. And I'm looking forward to seeing the edited version myself. Sounds good. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to Value Laden. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. Value Laden is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Jennifer Stein and Enrique Borges. Research was conducted by Shagun Singa. A special thank you to Elizabeth Mirabal for her coordination of interviews and overall support. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.